Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys once again. Thank you, Pastor John, for giving us a Sunday off and uh, get refreshed in the Lord. Much appreciated. Uh, today we're going to pick back up with Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. And as we, uh, as we go through this study, uh, let's, let's kind of be reminded, we're going to back up a little bit. We are going to start with 10, even though we left off with 10 last time. Uh, but Paul, you know, think about where we've been so far. He's, he's reminded the church that they were who they were before salvation. You know, that's a humbling thing. And all of your life as a Christian, uh, not from an accusing standpoint of the enemy accusing you of, you know, what a rotten person you are and how you were before, but the Lord also allows us to remember our life prior to our salvation. And I believe he does that. It keeps us humble. It keeps us humble, and it should keep us hungry for spreading the gospel and telling others about Jesus Christ. Um, he, he, he said from our last message, he says, then before Jesus, you were dead spiritually. You know, even though you're walking around in your body and you appeared to be alive, you were actually dead spiritually. You were under the control of the world, the devil and the flesh. We talked about that. But now as, as you become a believer, you are spiritually alive in Christ. And by his mercy, you've been raised by the power of resurrection, that powerful force of resurrection, that, that not only is going to happen with our bodies, you know, at, at when the Lord calls us, but also happens at the time you become a Christian. You're, you're made a new person, and you're seated together with Him in heaven. And so we know in the future, we talked about that, for all the ages, for all eternity, Jesus will be praised for that work that He did. And these are considered some of God's mighty acts of redemption, as the salvation story unfolds in all of our lives, as we go through the scripture, we start with a basic understanding that our sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for them. That's the basic understanding. We understand that he completes our salvation by rising from the grave. And he's been taken up to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And this isn't something we just look at and go, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. No, this is actually something that we are in, we are a part of. We have a seat in heaven. We become a new creature in Christ. And so these truths form the foundation of our faith. But this week, we're going to begin to look at the more profound effects of our redemption on the lives of his people, you and I, that were revealed by the Apostle Paul. This is a historical moment in the church because Paul was given the privilege of revealing the mystery of the church to the world, of which we are a part of now. Before that time, uh, you know, it was sort of a mystery even to the Old Testament writers of who the church would be. And he's going to go again and look back again and remind us as Gentiles, all of us, if you're, unless you're Jewish, we're all Gentiles, non-Jews, that once we were hopeless and without God. But now we're going to be united to God's people. Now this message today is talking not so much about your individual salvation. It ties in. It's all part of it. But the fact that we've been reconciled with the other family, if you will, the Jewish 
family that God selected this nation. It was a very specific thing. And so as Gentiles and Jews, the barriers of prejudice and all of that has been dissolved. It's been dissolved. And now you and I are in the family and we're part of a holy temple. You know, each one of you is like a, is like a brick. Okay, I'll call myself a blockhead. Let's do that. We're like a building block in the temple of God. It's a spiritual thing. And it's a wonderful thing. But we look back. Let's go ahead and read our passage for today. In fact, um, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Sorry. Verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, verse 11, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, which was made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one New man from the two. We're going to learn about the new race, the third race of people, the church. Thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit heavenly father we thank you for now revealing us thank you that we can share this time in church history when the church became known when paul revealed the true mystery of the church and and revealed fuller and more completely your plan of redemption and how you would use the church the bride of christ the body of christ in the ages that have taken place in 2000 years since and the future that you have for us. What a glorious future that you have provided for us. So Father, help us to take in this understanding, this deeper understanding of our faith, what it is we believe that we might be able to defend it, that we might be able to witness to others of your goodness and your greatness. Go before me now. Let your words be spoken by your Holy Spirit. Speak, Lord, to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So again, we were in chapter 10, real quickly, what we're saying in, excuse me, in verse 10 of chapter 2, 
We were saying, you know, for God, we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Beforehand, well, what? Well, before he created anything else, any other created things. It's amazing to think that God had you and I on his mind before he spoke the universe and the earth and all the creatures, before he created the first man. He had us in his mind from all of eternity. That's an amazing thought that's difficult for us to maybe wrap our heads around. But the more you embrace it, the more you understand it, the more you feel solid and safe in the Lord. I mean, what, what greater comfort could it be that, to know that our Heavenly Father's been, Father's been thinking about us for all of eternity? But yet, we, we, uh, we, we've been talking so far, and again, this is a sort of a, of a, of a review of, the first, of chapter 2. One writer put it this way, when you think about chapter 2, so far, he's been talking about these amazing things. It's an amazing spiritual journey that we often forget. Um, we, God has taken us from the amazing depths of depravity. We talked about that doctrine of depravity. He's also taken us to the amazing heights of redemption. So you've gone from the lowest place to the highest place, to the heavens. All because of his amazing grace towards you and I, and then in verse 10, which we just read, he tops it off with his amazing work that he's planned for us. And as we said, God is creator of Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And all of this he spoke into existence. And so oftentimes, you know, we were just on vacation down at the beach and we saw the beautiful sunrise and the sunset and the ocean and the glory and the heavens, you know, the earth and the heavens declaring his glory. Yet, you and I are more valuable to him than all of that. All of those things that we chase after, and we love to be outdoors, we love to do things that are exciting. If you think about it, Psalm 134, 14, it says, we're not merely given by the fact that we're physically fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't think we have a slide for that. The fact that God has created us and made us uh, to be higher than any creation. But think about the fact that you've been twice redeemed and that you've been twice created, if you're a Christian. You've been twice created. He created man. You were born by the natural processes that he set in place. And then by spiritual birth, you were born again. So you were twice created. And you were also twice redeemed. You were also, given, you know, Christ going to the, to the cross for us and redeeming us, but having thought of us from the very beginning. We're a new creation in Christ. St. Augustine wrote this when he talks about how we wander about in the world and we go to see all the great sights and we take our vacations and they're wonderful. He says, men go abroad to wonder at the height of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, the long courses of the rivers, the vast compass of the season at the circular motion of the stars, and that yet they pass by themselves without ever wondering. We're his highest creation. You have to wonder about that. So if we are indeed his workmanship, what, what does that mean? What is our responsibility having declared? And Hughes writes, he says, if we are indeed his workmanship, what does that require of us? And it's three things if you're taking notes. 
One is that we believe it. You have to believe it. You have to be faithful. It's very simple. It's simple and faithful truth. And oftentimes we're bombarded with other things that rob us of our belief because we don't take time to meditate on Scripture and spend time with Him. We also need to hold still. Remember that we are shaped by His Word. You know, as a new Christian, as a, as a Christian or a saint that's been walking with the Lord, your worldview and the way you behave and the way you act in society and in family and everything is or should be shaped by the Word of God. And so we need to stay in it. And then, of course, most importantly, what God holds in very high esteem, we need to obey it. Not only, uh, you know, not just the sacrifices, not just believe, not just reading the word, but we've been established that salvation can't possibly come through our own works. However, but once we're saved, we must work. We must work. We must serve the Lord in whatever way he calls us to do. And then when you're doing it, you know, serving the Lord in your flesh, or you're, not, you know, you're in a place where he doesn't really want you to be serving, it's very difficult. But when you're led by the Holy Spirit, and you know that you're in the right place, the place that the Lord has called you, it's not hard work. It can be difficult, but you're empowered by the Spirit. It can be discouraging, it can be depressing, there's a lot of things going on, but when you're empowered by the Spirit, you can do amazing things for the Lord. Amen? So each of us has an eternally designed job description, wrote one writer, which includes the task, the ability, and the place to serve. The task, the ability, and the place to serve. Think about it. You, know, you, you, you wrestle with your calling as a Christian. What am I to do? What does the Lord have for me to do? If you're a part of the local church, you're, you're, you know, again, you're a living stone. You have a place on the wall that's being built. You know, just as a temple was being rebuilt. You have a place to serve. This writer says this. Now, as far as the place he sends you to, you may prefer Jerusalem, right? You may prefer somewhere else in this world to serve him. But you will glorify him more in Babylon, <laughs> the place you didn't want to be, if he called you to be there. And whatever the task which he has called you to do, you will be equipped for as surely as a bird is capable of flight. As, as surely as that, and in doing the works that he has called you and I to do, you will be both more and more of his workmanship and more of your true self. You know, we're always talking about finding ourself. I want to find the true me, right? The sociology approach. Well, if you go Jesus's way, if you go the Lord's way, and you submit to him, you will be the true self that he desires because you will be his workmanship. And you will have been created by him again since before the beginning of time in all eternity for good works to do. That's a quick review of last week. That's one verse. I don't know how far we're going to get today. Sorry. <laughs> now let's talk about where we're at, you know, in verse 11, 11 through 12. He says, you were once, he's reminding us, all of us, not just the Gentiles of the day. The church in Ephesus was mostly Gentiles. It was mostly Greek and Roman. He says, you were once hopeless and without God. You were once hopeless and without God. Now Paul's going to hone in on an age-old condition between people. 
an age-old condition between people where walls or barriers that separate and prevent access to something. There are walls and barriers that separate. It could be our own perspective. You know, we're all familiar with them. Some things separate us, our language. If you're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language. If you're in a culture that's not your own culture, it's like a wall or a barrier. You have economic barriers. You have religious barriers. You have political barriers, right? It's voting season, right? You see it all happening. You have generational age gap, you know, older and younger. There's barriers. There's gender differences between, there's one man, there's two genders, one man, one woman, by the way. Only two. Only two. Only two. But this separation, folks, can lead to alienation. It can lead to alienation. In fact, it, it can lead to wars, conflicts, crimes, poverty, and so on. Just look at the news. You'll see what's happening. The reason why you have this rampant crime and evil that goes on in this world, one of the main reasons is because of separation. There's walls and there's barriers between people. And the problem has continued through the course of history, right up to our present day. It's a struggle that plagues everyone. And you know, how often have you heard it say, why can't we just all get along, right? Why you got to hate? Those kind of things. And we learn the reason. We know the reason. We, we're, you know, we're people of the Bible. It's because of sin. Man is hopeless and without God. When you're separated from God, as he's, he's going to describe to us, you're hopeless and without God. Now, you can look around and you can see, you may not say, well, I don't think of it that way. Okay, fine. But you look around at the world and what's going on in the world and for all generations and today, information age provides us with all kinds of information. And one thing that you should notice is this struggle continues and people are literally stuck in it. They're stuck in this struggle between one group over here and one group over there. But God... Long ago, moved, he moved all the way past that. He's gone beyond that. He has a plan and a way forward. He has made a way for alienation from, one, from each other all the way to reconciliation with one another in Christ. And he did it right here when he spoke through the Holy Spirit to Paul and described the mystery of the church. So verses 11 through 12, he says, Therefore, remember. Now, why does Paul have to say remember? Well, because things have changed, okay? Things have changed since Christ came and the church was formed. He says, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh. They were, there was a separation we've been talking about. And it was signified by a religious and ethnic barricade between the Jews and the Gentiles. And they started, he, he refers to the fact that they call each other names. There's name calling. You see that in our world. You see name calling between groups. Sort of how it starts, maybe, when it becomes vocal. He says, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Uncircumcision. You're that. That's those, those dirty, filthy dog Gentiles. That's how the Jews would look at them. 
and they would be considered the circumcision. They looked down their noses. This was name-calling that was going on between the two branches of the human family. Remember, the nation Israel was created. Abraham wasn't Jewish when he began the nation Israel. God created a new nation and a new race of people. Uncircumcision means to the Jew, it's a physical description, but it means without the sign of the covenant. You don't have that. You were far away from God. You didn't have these covenants. But he goes on to say, he makes a little note. He said, made in the flesh by hands. It's performed by a, a, a surgical procedure that we're all aware of. But this is actually a sort of a side note. It's a foreshadow when you talk about circumcision of the spiritual circumcision which belongs to all of us who are in Christ. And we'll talk about that. It's a, it's a circumcision. He describes it as a circumcision for all who are in Christ, which was made without hands. And we'll talk about that in Colossians chapter 2. Hughes writes this. He says, A study of history in the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of the racial barriers, the narrow nationalisms, or the iron curtains are or were more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. It was a stark separation. It was, it was, a, you know, it was as clear as day. You do not cross this particular line. We're going to talk about that. But keep in mind, Paul is not wanting just to give us a history lesson. He wants everyone to understand the things that prior to Jesus sort of separated God, excuse me, man from God. We know that our sin separates us from God apart from Jesus. But Paul's going to address these social issues that were going on and the reality of what it was like to be apart from God. We know that the way back to God is by giving your life to Jesus, by admitting that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. But he's describing the condition apart from Christ before this mystery of the church was revealed. It starts with a wall of separation. This is that religious barrier we were talking about. This nation, the nation Israel, was created by, Abraham, through, by God through Abraham, and they were challenged, if you read through the Old Testament, the nation Israel was challenged to be missionaries to the world. That was the challenge he had. As they prepared for their Messiah, Jesus, to come. God wanted a people that would love him and serve him supremely. A people he could send the promised seed, Jesus Messiah, to all men everywhere. A people he could send his word, which is today called the Bible. His word that would be preserved for all generations. But as we know, reading through the Old Testament, it details the failure of the nation Israel. How they became exclusive. They became prideful. They became religious fanatics. And by the time Jesus came, he's like, what are you guys doing? What, you've made a total mess of this whole thing. God never intended you to do the things you were doing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
They failed to properly interpret God's word. They would think and they would say that the seed of Abraham only included the Jews. Excluding the rest of the world. That's how they became very exclusive and prideful. The Bible says explicitly that the seed of Abraham is Christ and the special people of God are those individuals within all nations who worship God supremely. That's the church. They also falsely claimed that the eternal kingdom promised through David was a Jewish kingdom only. Again, they were so xenophobic, if you will. We're going to talk about that. In Acts chapter 10, you know, Peter, a Jew, when the, when the church was born and was taken off in Acts chapter 10, he says he, it says he opened his mouth and he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Peter just summed it all up, what God's intention was through the nation Israel. The point is that before Jesus came, these Gentiles, and that's the rest of humanity apart from the Jews, they weren't the covenant people, they were barricaded by God or from God by religion. And you see that today. You see that today even in the church where people feel outsiders. You know, we're going to, uh, after the first of the year, Lord willing, uh, we're going to, uh, as a church, we're going to invite you guys to go to the local movie theater and see the Jesus Revolution. Because it's a great story. It has a little bit to do with Calvary Chapel, so that's kind of nice. But it's a true story about a part of what was happening in the early 70s with the, what was called the Jesus Revolution or uh, the uh, 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 Jesus movement, the, you know, the, the one-way Jesus you know, all the hippies, a lot of the hippies and young folks in our nation were in droves coming to the Lord. It was probably the last widespread revival in our nation. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see how that happened. And one of the things that enabled this, to this move of God to happen was the churches, and Chuck Smith was one of the leaders of these churches, when the churches around the nation opened their doors to those filthy dog hippies, with no shoes on, right? I mean, literally, if you remember, if any of you are older, you might remember what it was like. Maybe you even were a hippie. <laughs> you may remember the smell. But <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, the bath, shower, all that kind of stuff was optional. But uh, um, in any event, they, the church in America, and not just Calvary Chapel, opened their doors to let these young hippie kids most of them runaways and drug addicts, come to faith. And the church embraced them in these places, and that's where, you know, it just took off. It's an amazing thing. So Lord willing afterwards. But that, that what was happening for the churches that didn't do that, they were a religious barricade to that generation, that new generation. They were like, we're not letting them in here. They're going to destroy the carpet. They don't know how to dress. They don't take showers and baths. And it happened right here in our country, and we're going to see a reenactment re of that, a real good reenactment of that. We've got different problems today, I understand. But uh, in any event, we can still create barricades when you and I become religious to the point 
that we're no longer following the Lord, we're no longer exercising grace and love and mercy with truth, we become a religious barricade to our society. Gosh, we're only in chapter, verse 12. So he says here, he, he lists five things. Five things if you're taking notes. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. They were Christless. He says at that time you were without Christ. You were separate. They had no knowledge or expectation of a Messiah. None. They were Christless. Until Jesus came and until the church was founded, the people of this world, they had no excuse because they had creation to see God's handiwork, but the gospel message hadn't started to come out yet. And that all changed. They were Christless. They were also stateless. He says, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel's and strangers from the covenants of promise. You didn't have, they didn't have a legal, you know, when God created the nation Israel, he gave them a legal standing in his eyes. He said, this is your land. These are the rules that I want you to live by. And these are the promises that I give to you, only the nation Israel. The promises. And before they came, before the church was formed, they didn't have that. They were Christless. They were stateless. They were without a country. They were friendless. They were strangers from the covenants. This is that word strangers. That's xenos, which is where we get the word xenophobia. Xenophobia. They were without knowledge. They had no share in anything. They had no share in the covenants. They were without a friend in God. Now James 2.23 says, The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. But before Christ came, they didn't have that. They were hopeless. They had no hope, and they were without God in the world. And I, I, you know, if you're a believer, and maybe you think back to when you were like that, would you ever want to go back to that? Where you, are no, you have no hope, and when you're without God in this world. What a terrible thing. And you, would, you could not, you know, you, sometimes we take, it, we take it way for granted, okay? We, we lean on God's grace quite heavily at times, don't we? Don't we? One writer put it this way, Lewis Sperry Schaefer. He said, again, kind of explaining the situation that was happening with Paul and the church at Ephesus and the, the new church that was being formed. He says, the world today knows little of the godless and hopeless condition of human life among the Gentiles in the days which the reference that we're talking about was made. Okay, here's the historical context. We are told that at the highest state of the Greek culture under Alexander the Great. Remember we talked about Alexander the Great when we went to the book of Daniel, the greatest general who ever lived. And this culture, this Greek culture had advanced beyond anything ever known. It was commonly held. Now this is where they're at, this high point of their society with the greatest general on earth conquering everything. And yet it was commonly held that the best thing for a person was not to be born at all. Not to even be born. You know, remember uh, Job's wife said, curse God and die. And Job, he, he lamented the day he was even born. And next to that was to die. 
This was a suicide generation. Because they were apart from God, they were godless. Without God in the world. That word is atheos, where we get the word atheist from. So when you meet an atheist, when you meet an atheist, maybe you can remind them of the tragedy that they claim to be without God in this world. Without hope in this world. Destitute of God. It meant they stood alone in the world. Whatever happened, whatever fate would, for, would overcome them, they were on their own. There was nothing that they could see beyond themselves. They had no vision for the future and hope. They were alienated from the only true and living God. And that's each one of us apart from Christ. Before we come to know him. Now in our culture, you know, we live in, quote, a post-Christian culture, a post-modern culture, a very secularized world. We still see the hunger, don't we? You know, the rise in suicide and the, you know, all the things that happen with uh, euthanasia and different countries and, of course, abortion, all that's, it's, a, it's really a culture of death, isn't it? I mean, teen suicide is, in three short years has gone up 29% in our country. Why? Because our country starts to push God away, has been doing it for many, many generations now, many decades, I should say. And so what happens is you are without God and you're without hope in the world. That's what happens. But we have a longing, we have a hunger. People are longing for hope or faith in humanity, right? We often see videos and photographs that are brought to our attention to help us restore faith in humanity. And these are very touching. You know, they contain real acts of compassion. You see it for yourself, rescuing a drowning animal from frozen water or a first responder taking a man off a suicide bridge. Athletes and celebrities donating time, raising funds to help those in need. Those are all good things. You see, we're hungry for that. We're hungry to see, but we're looking in the wrong place. Faith in humanity is not going to work apart from God. We have all the positive quotes from the great thinkers and writers, you know. They go on and on. Help us feel better about our human condition. Some quotes are from far very strong Christians. Some are from devout atheists or humanists. Why? Because there's so much brokenness in our fallen world. You see, man's trying to fill it in, trying to help, trying to counterfeit what God has desired to do in your hearts. And so everybody, everybody looks for something to hope in. That's not a reason to despise anybody. And I'm just as much a fan of uplifting good works as anybody is, right? In fact, we're called to do good works. We just talked about that. But in order to give all glory to God, we must acknowledge the truth about ourselves. That apart from Christ, you and I had no hope and we were without God. It's election season. 
The promises of those who want to represent us are before us once again. And unfortunately, many of these promises are wrapped up in political ideologies. You see the backbiting between the candidates, and you know of the corruption, which will either be revealed prior or after. But that said, we Christians, we do need to participate. So, don't, you know, again, we're not trying to say, oh, we're just going to stay in our little four-wall church and live our little communal Christian life. No, we need to be active and, and out there and exercise the rights that we have. We need to participate. We need to discern who good candidates are. And we absolutely need to go to vote. So let's make sure that we're still chewing gum and walking at the same time. We're understanding okay, that the big picture and the ultimate lead, need and solution is not a new candidate, a new you know, group of politicians. That's not the ultimate need. Our loudest shout needs to be the gospel with our lives, with our deeds, and with our dedication. And it's easy to get that flipped over, isn't it? Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? So how do we get back to the garden? You know, we were once miserable, without God in the world, hopeless. How do we get back to the garden? How do we have fellowship with God restored? This, this, the title of this section is Now United to God's People in Christ. How do we get back? Simple answer, by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Man was estranged from God and there was no way back unless God made a way. So God in his great love for us had to find a way to forgive our transgressions and rebellion and there was only one thing that he could do. He sent his only begotten son to pay the price of sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, became a perfect and therefore acceptable sacrifice to the Father. This provided reconciliation with all who would receive his great love. Along with this came the need for reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's what we're talking about again, as I remind you today. And you know, as you look at this reconciliation between these two families created by God, the Jews and Gentiles, it's, it might not be what you expect. When you think of rec reconciliation, he's not talking about mingling and joining religions and a philosophy. That's not what he's talking about doing. No, it's about a new race of people. Some refer to it as the third race. You have Jews, Gentiles, and now you have the church. A new race of people. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. Verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, you were once far off. You were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. But you've been brought near by his suffering on the cross in our place. A person could not be any closer to God than somebody who's in Christ because of his shed blood. People do 
things, you know, searching for God, searching for life's meaning. And they walk through their lives and they travel all the world wide and they journal and they write books and novels about their quests and their search for the meaning of life. But it couldn't be, you couldn't be any closer to God than through the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. Not only the personal peace and the, of eternal life and deliverance from the power and the penalty of sin, the basics of our Christianity, he actually is the ultimate peace treaty between all men and between God and men. And it says, who has made both one. This is where we get the third race. Look at that. He's made both Jew and Gentile into one. That's the church. It's a common path. Everyone now, things have changed. Everyone, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you approach God on the same basis, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. And you have a common love and purpose. Loving the Lord and one another while serving together for the gospel. That's what he's called us to do. And notice he says, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation. What's he talking about? What's the wall of separation? Now, again, historical context and what the people of that day would understand. It was the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Prior to the temple being destroyed in A.D. 70, this great Herod's temple stood, the second temple. And there were inscriptions placed on that wall. And they were made visible, but they were written in two languages, Latin and Greek. Why weren't they written in, Jew or in Hebrew? Because it was to keep people out, the Gentiles, to keep them out. And so you would come to the court of the Gentiles, and you would read these inscriptions on this wall. And it says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now sure enough, these inscriptions were found by archaeological discoveries in 1871 and 1934. And they're in museums to this day that you can read. So it's a true fact. But Jesus Christ... Paul uses that middle wall of separation as sort of a metaphor to explain what happened between these two races of people. Jesus crumbled that. You know, we think about the famous line by uh, President Reagan at the time, two years before the Iron Curtain, the, the wall was torn down that separated Berlin, communism. And he would say that famous line, I believe he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then sure enough, two, two years later, they did. And the citizens of both countries, East and West Germany, went out and demolished the wall by hand. Some of you remember that. And that's what Paul's talking about. That wall of separation now is gone. We'd like to put it back up, don't we? But that's gone. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. The enmity was the cause or the reason for the opposition. It was religiosity, as we see, the law of commandments contained in the ordinance. You know, the Jews 
were bound by the covenants and the law of Moses. But none of the Gentiles, unless they wanted to become a Jew, which they could, they could be a foreigner, could be brought in and be proselytized and be circumcised if he was a man and become like a Jew. But for the most part, if they wouldn't, you know, if they weren't part of that, they were, they were uh, separated. But remember, Jesus, when we talk about the law, the Ten Commandments out there on the hallway, Jesus came, he said, I fulfilled that. I, fil I fulfilled the law unto himself by doing so, he abolished the what? He didn't abolish those good rules to live by. He didn't take that away, the moral law. None of the things we should want to do that it says that not to do. No, what did he do? He took away the condemnation of the law. You couldn't live up to it, and so Jesus abolished it. He took away that condemnation. And that's what was happening, that religious Jewish thing to all the Gentiles in the world. They were being condemned by the law, whether they're Jew Jewish or Gentile for that matter. Romans 8, 1 through 3, we know it. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it goes on. So there's no longer, when he says condemnation, the law can no longer condemn you if you're a Christian. And again, we said, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, that third race of the church. And notice he says, thus making peace. Again, that word peace comes in. Jesus fulfills the demands of the law that separated. He reconciled the alienation between God and all of mankind. And you know what? You, you might think it's a little bit too simple, wouldn't you? But the problems we face in society could be solved. Race, racism, prejudice, and hatred. If everybody in the world recognized the work of Christ and what he's done, it would be gone. It would be gone. But instead, we know what's happening. You've got to pull away from God. You're going to be secular humanists. You bring in Marxist, counterfeit, you know, morality. And you get into all the stuff that's on the ballot now that's being talked about by the politicians, what's being taught in schools. Critical race theory, woke ideology, all that kind of stuff. They want to make things right, but they don't want to do it with God's, with God's way. They don't want to recognize that Jesus did the work. They want to create their own way. And what they do is they separate people again. They separate them. They take ethnic groups and they say, okay, now you just be in your, you know, they, they try to highlight that and then put the walls back up again. That's what's happening. But not in the church. The wall has been taken away. At least it shouldn't be. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. You know, his message then and now. You know, he, he went and gave the message. He came to the earth. He took away the separation, the wall of separation. He brought the gospel to mankind. And he also gave it to those who were near. Far off, Gentiles, near the Jews. Remember, it's everybody needs the gospel. 
And so they were near because they were in the land that God had given them. Verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Access means literally a leading or bringing into the presence of. It's, it's as though the Lord, you know, has opened the door to this, the, the majesty of God. He has opened the door and God's Holy Spirit escorts us into the, to the, the throne room. When we come to the throne of grace, we're being escorted by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus opened the door so that we could come before the Father and boldly pray. Because the Holy Spirit keeps us in the presence of God. Amen? Now we do live in a culture, and again, speaking of the secular worldview that we have surrounding us, you know, seemingly wanting to take over, but they can't. They can't take over the church, not the true church of God. Even the gates of hell cannot storm it, cannot destroy it. But it seems like it when you watch the boob tube or, you know, you go into that flat screen and you get all that news. And so we do live in a culture that accuses the church of putting up barriers and the exclusivity of Christ alone for salvation. We're accused of that. They say, you're not, you're not inclusive at all. The breaking down of barriers does not mean that we have a universal approach to man's eternal destiny by accepting and even promoting sinful lifestyles. This is where Christians have to take a stand and may well be persecuted and put in jail for it, or worse. We've seen it all throughout the church, and we are likely to see it in our day as well. We're seeing it. By breaking down the religious barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles and bringing mankind near to God by Jesus' shed blood, the door of salvation has been made available to all who will repent of their sins and ask Christ into their lives. Hughes writes this. He says, The peace and reconciliation is the peace of the church, not the peace of the world. Peace between Jew and Gentile, the world's races and ethnic groups, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, comes only in Christ. What does this mean? This means that the church has an immense responsibility to be a pocket of reconciliation and shalom or peace in an alienated world. We're going to pick up verse 19 next week. Uh, I, I've just run too, too long. I apologize. We will not finish the rest of our scripture today. But I just want to share with you um, some final thoughts, if you will. My prayer, my encouragement for us today is that we would again renew our hearts and minds to a deeper understanding as to why it is that we are here together. And as we said, if I finish today's message, we'll pick it up next week. We're being built as living stones created by God for his inhabitants. 
And so as you and I allow the Holy Spirit to dwell and move within us, we should sense a purpose. What role does God have for you and I? If you're a living stone or building block, which provides a home for God's presence among us and fulfilling the purposes of a local church. Many Christians today, and especially this is a difficult time for ministry in the post-COVID world because still people have developed the habit of staying away from church. And they're getting their fellowship online. They're not really rubbing elbows with the body of Christ anymore. They found other things to do on Sundays. But we are called to conform to his will in our private lives. We're called to glorify him in our corporate gatherings. And we're called to testify of him in our public witness. We've got a couple outreaches scheduled for this year. There's actually three. We have the uh, October 31st outreach. We're not, we're not celebrating evil, by the way. We're not celebrating any of that. We're using it as an opportunity speak into the lives of those who would come and hear the gospel we've got the prayer walk in Raleigh it's more of a celebration, it's week 40 there's going to be hundreds of people there from churches all around North Carolina and it'll be happening everywhere around the country where this Love Life organization has become established more and more and so it's a place to come together and to join in prayer the battle has ticked up since Roe v. Wade concerning abortion and one of the reasons why we have to go to a different location to meet is because the parking lot that's that we were meeting in in Raleigh has lots of, you know, sort of counter protesters. There's no violence. There's no violence, so don't worry about that. But people are angry about the fact that the church seems to maybe have won a victory in overturning Roe v. Wade, and we're only partway there, actually. And our state is still very pro-abortion on the government level. And so seeing this happen is causing us to have to take a stand as a church. All the churches around, whether you, you vote for pro-life candidates, however which way you go, whether you participate in the prayer walks, the prayer and the fasting. So our corporate gatherings are to glorify God, but we also want to come out into the workplace, out into the marketplace, out into the world around us. And then also we have a third, I'm, I'm sorry to continue announcements like this, but we have a third outreach scheduled for this year, uh, Lord willing, and that's the uh, Christmas parade. And that's a fun thing to do. You can bring the kids and kind of pile in and go to the local Christmas parade. And you have an opportunity to give out tracts and to be a part and a witness. So as we close this portion of our study, what, what kind of personal application do you have? What can we, we talked about outreach and stuff like this, but let's go a little bit personally. Have you, each one of you here, have you experienced personally the grace of God in your life? Is that a personal thing that you can lay claim to? Or are you spiritually dead, perhaps distant from God? If that's the case, there's a good reason why you're here. Like the nation Israel, the church in America has been given many great privileges only to reject what God gave them. Remember, they were a chosen nation. 
And we are not the nation Israel here in America, but we did have freedom of religion and have had it for several decades, centuries. Freedom to choose and to worship. But it does seem by the numbers, as you look at what's going on, we're definitely in need of a revival. That's what we pray for. For the Lord to come back. But many people have shunned the spiritual privilege that you can have, the freedom of, of worshiping God and coming to know the one true God. The next thing would be, if you are a true believer in Christ, are you helping others to trust Him? Are you praying to the Lord? Knowing that you've been raised from the dead, You've been come close to the Lord. He's been, you've been brought near to Him by the blood of Christ and you walk in a newness of life. Do you share the good news? Do I share the good news with others when we're given the opportunity? We're no longer at war with God. There's no longer enmity at God. We can't use our religion. We shouldn't be using our religion to put up barriers. We're at peace with God. And we want to share that with others. So you need to make this reconciliation, which you may claim to have, you need to make it personal. Ask Jesus to come into your life. Recognize who you are apart from God. That no works can get you there. And He will receive you with open arms. Ask Him into your heart today. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time together once again in Your Word. Lord, I pray that Your Word would not return void to any of us here. That it would spur us on. Just Maybe it's just the comfort of knowing our right standing with You. Hopefully it puts a desire in our hearts to want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and tell others about You. Abide in the Holy Spirit and resist temptation and overcome sin. Have a, have a testimony of the things that you do in our lives as you conform us into your image and likeness. Father, we love you. We trust you. We stand on your truth and your promises, Lord. And we ask simply that you would go before us now as we conclude our service. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.